Hello, hello, and welcome to the Sensuality Academy podcast. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you've likely heard all the controversy that is Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's new song, WAP. That's W-A-P, which of course stands for Wet Ass Pussy. In it, the artists share quite graphically what kind of sex they like, what they want from their man, and refer consistently to just how wet their pussies are. It's caused quite a stir because how very dare two fully grown women rap about their sexuality so openly, right? It's not like male rappers have been doing so for years, singing and rapping about their dick size, what they like to do to women, and quite often in a rather problematic and derogatory way, more than an empowering way, such as we see in WAP. But, oh no, as soon as women sing about their sexual fantasies and their own bodies in an albeit colourful but overall consensual way, all hell breaks loose and people lose their minds. As someone who teaches all about sexual empowerment, especially that of women, it's no surprise to me that this song caused such a stir. And clearly you all know me very well because I received a message from a past student of mine sharing an article all about WAP and why it is somewhat of an anthem spearheading a new wave of female empowerment. I read this article written by Rhea Cartwright and damn near broke my neck nodding along because every single point she made was pure gold. I loved this article so much that I just had to reach out to Ria, and I'm so honored that she agreed to come onto the podcast today to speak to us all about WAP and share some insights about this epic song from a perspective that I couldn't have provided on my own. Ria is a London-based journalist and consultant. With an extensive background working in the beauty industry, she writes for publications such as Vogue, Refinery29, and Pop Sugar. In her multidisciplinary career, her aim is always to inspire, motivate, educate, and empower. This discussion with Ria is incredibly eye-opening, and I know you're going to learn a thing or two. So, enjoy. Welcome to the Sensuality Academy podcast, where I share tangible techniques to help you embody your femininity enhance your sex life, and elevate your relationships. I'm your host, Eleanor Hadley, sensuality coach and founder of Sensual Yoga. Now let's unleash your inner sensualista. Hello, Ria, and welcome to the Sensuality Academy podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty early here in the UK. It's like quarter past seven so if I still sound a little bit raspy then um I am yeah, I've not long woken up so I do apologize in advance <laughs> I'm very flattered that you woke up early for me well I mean I don't do it very often so yeah you're, you're lucky <laughs> but also I'm an amazing an, an amazing kind of topic and subject matter to speak about so it's definitely worth waking up early for absolutely and I know that my get my audience is going to be very, very happy that you woke up for us because this is such an interesting topic. When I read your article, um, a past student of mine actually sent it to me and I read your article um, on Pop Sugar and I was just blown away. 
you managed to articulate some like incredibly like layered themes from WAP and I just knew that I needed to have you on the podcast so I'm excited to chat all about this epic song with you today. Oh thank you yeah I mean I feel like you know it was a very like decisive and still is because it's still obviously out there a very like divisive song and video um but yeah I think when I first saw it I had very kind of like instinctive first initial thoughts um and then I just kind of it was like we need to kind of speak about this and discuss this and open up the conversation a bit more yeah I think I I was the same I first saw it and listened to it and I was like oh I could feel my internalized misogyny just kind of reeling at it and then you know I, I teach a lot about questioning your conditioning and I was like okay why why do certain things make me uncomfortable and what's that about and you really dove into this in your article and I'm going to put the article in the show notes for everybody to read um so let's dive into it the in the article you spoke of what I thought was really interesting the insufferable irony that the current U.S. president can claim that it's okay to grab them by the pussy, but two women cannot discuss the mo- moistness of their own. And <laughs> I thought that was a great line. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you think that we have such um, a disdain for women expressing their sexuality? Um, well, I think it, it goes down to, oh, yeah, so I think ultimately, the, you know, the disdain for discussing it is, is this really a method of control? I think when you look back, like historically and anthropogi- anthropologically, which I do, I think that surprises people. Like I'm, I'm such a geek in terms of like the history of stuff. When a woman traditionally has had any kind of freedom, whether it be emotional, financial, sexual, she almost has, she almost becomes too powerful for, of course, the patriarchal society that we all live in. And obviously, you know, when we think about now in 2020, you know, I think people, particularly, um, you know, straight white men in power like to imagine or like to think that the patriarchy maybe isn't as bad. because It's not as it's not as um, explicit as it used to be, you know, hundreds of years ago. But when you do look back, you see that whenever there's a, a woman that reclaims her sexuality, you know, she gets labeled a witch or she is evil, that there's always some negative connotation attached to her, which I think has just stayed with us, you know, as society has progressed, you know, and and it obviously changes from, you know, she's she's not a witch, but she's, you know, a whore, or she's a hoe, or a slut, or any other kind of derogatory term um, that's labelled, that's linked to women, and her somehow having some kind of, like, promiscuity. Um which is just ridiculous, frankly. You know, the 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 line obviously linking um, the current US president, whose name I will not mention. It's like Voldemort for me. You know, I just can't say that name. Um, <laughs> totally. I, I, like that was kind of, I think, the one of the biggest, like one of the most kind of the quote that was, I think, liked the most because it's so true. It's like, why is this okay? Why is a man that's holding power? in one of the most powerful offices in the world allowed us. And we know he said that, you know, it's not like, it's not, you know, hearsay. We know he said that, but yet you then have American politicians 
declaring that, you know, that Cardi and Megan are just like these awful women and that they're to blame for the downfall of humanity. It's it's just, it's so, such a double standard um, that it's quite worrying that we, we still, we still have that now. Absolutely. And you made a really great point that, you know, surely there are more important things for politicians to be focusing on than some new song. Um, yeah. And you actually shared a quote from uh, former congressional candidate Diana Lorraine, who called the song disgusting and vile. And this word disgusting that is used, it's used so much to explain women expressing their own sexuality. And I actually put a question sticker up asking people on Instagram what they thought of WAP. And predominantly my followers were like, amazing, like feminist anthem, like here for it. And I had a few people who actually said it's disgusting. For me, I find that so weird because first of all, I mean, I disgusting is such a strong word, you know, to have disgust for something would have to be I mean, I, I just can't even imagine, to be honest, anything in which a woman can speak about her own body that can cause someone disgust. It, it's very, um, you know, is it the fact that they're speaking about it kind of so publicly? Like, if it was just a quiet conversation between friends, would that be disgust? You know, I think it's, this is what I don't understand sometimes people's really negative attitudes towards it. The video, even, and if it's to do with the video, that the video is not any more explicit than videos before it, you know? And I think it's also really important to bear in mind that, like, in, um, and I wanted to add this in, but I, I, my word can't run out. In a lot of hip hop videos, especially in the past, you would have like the vid- the version for the TV channels, and then you would also have an explicit uncut version. So songs like, and you would then have TV channels. I don't know if it's same in Australia, but you'd have like like MTV Bass, which MTV Bass predominantly plays like music of Black origin, like R and B and hip hop and stuff. After a certain time, would play the uncut X rated versions where women would literally be naked. So the the kind of you know like the song um, PIMP with like 50 oh yeah 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 like so PIMP with like 50 cent and Snoop Dogg and stuff there is like a, there's like a a version which is like safe <laughs> safe for children or safe <laughs> for work should we say you know like in where women are just like you know in tight fitted clothing or in bikinis and then there's another version where the women are literally like naked like you know full areolas wow. out um and and that's this is what I mean. It's kind of like, why is that okay? Because that, I think, is, is, I mean, that for me is disgusting. And the fact that it's okay for a man to have literally, literally naked women in videos that we only show after a certain time, but a woman can't kind of like shake her own body, not around men talking about her own body. It just makes no sense to me. It makes no sense. That's, I had no idea about that whole uncut thing. And it's so bizarre because the clean version of that video is probably akin to WAP. Like they're, they're fully clothed. Like, I mean, not fully like everything covered, but they're like the, the parts that cause offense and these are in air quotes are covered. Um, yeah, they're dressed really sexy and they're like really expressing their sexuality, but 
it's probably just like on the same level as most male rappers videos exactly exactly 100% the only difference is that there are no men so that's what I find very interesting is that okay so it's completely fine for is it completely fine for women to wear these as I said kind of in air quotes, sexual or explicit outfits when there are men around and no one's really questioning it. But when you take um, men out of that equation, all of a sudden it creates an uproar. Why? Why is that the case? Absolutely. And you speak in your article about this unwavering fear toward female sexual pleasure and the fact that there's this deep-seated belief in many cultures that women do not have the right to own their sexuality. And for me, obviously, this is a topic that I'm so, so very passionate about. And most of my work is about empowering women in particular to reclaim their sexuality and to give them permission to be sexual beings. So I guess my question is, do you see WAP is that how I say it? Wap or wap? I don't know. Do you see it as something that, you know, encourages a reclamation or do you see it as something that could potentially push this further away and take us further away from empowerment considering the controversial like reception that we've had of it oh I think that's difficult to answer like as a which one do I agree I, I for me for the most part I think anything any topic that invites discussion and open dialogue is a catalyst for change so I kind of think that you know I think it's very easy for um, the more kind of like traditional feminist stand standpoint to 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 claim that you know WAP is disgusting and it's actually anti-feminist and it's you know it's kind of belittling all the work that they've put in for all of this time. Da, 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 da. But I think again, it's because people have this very rigid view of feminism and what feminism looks like, and I think that for the most part, that view that view hasn't evolved in the same way that our mentality has evolved in terms of other subjects, you know? So in terms of maybe like, you know, I know we'll get into it, but stuff like that, you know, the intersectionality of feminism, that's, that's still so new and and that's still so, um, you know, even for feminists that have been kind of doing this work, you know, for, for decades that kind of, you know, maybe like our mother's age or, or our grandparents age, they still find it very difficult to get to grips with things like WAP, you know, because it's almost, it, 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 it almost kind of feels, I think for them, like, but how, how can this possibly be now the, the solution or a driver for everything we've been working towards or against, whatever way you want to word it for the last, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And it's like, that's the whole point is that there, there isn't one, it's not like we're not, we're not cooking. There's, there's not one clear cookie cut solution. It looks different for everybody. And I think that's, I think that, that part that it's different for everybody is very difficult for people to understand because it's this, in the same way that like, you know, I always, I can, you can liken it to kind of literally anything like your favorite I don't know, your favourite pasta isn't my favourite pasta, but we can both still enjoy pasta. And I think with feminism, it's the same thing. It's like, we're going to have different things that we're fighting for based on our own upbringing, based on our own, and, and our, our, our differences, what, what what's important to us. But at the same time, we still have the same like code for it. 
And I think as society kind of progresses and, you know, intersectionality is pushed more, then people will start to understand that 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 a bit a bit further, hopefully. I think that's such a great point because um you know, yeah, we might have different ideas of what our feminism means to us, but we're all still sort of fighting the same fight. Um, and you know, what might resonate with certain people is like, yes, this is helping us, and other things might resonate with others. But I think you know, what you mentioned about intersectionality, it's really important that, like you said, you know, I, I have my favorite pasta, you have your favorite pasta, but when we're talking about feminism, it's so important that we, especially as white women, um, and I know a lot of my audience are white women, we understand the layers of and the, the way that things intersect when we're thinking of, um, of feminism. And you know, yeah, I have my favorite pasta, you have your favorite pasta, but if I'm like actively like stealing your pasta, like that's a problem. And exactly. that's where like white feminism is such a problem. And I think that this song has really, really made a lot of obviously con um, conservative people, um, but also a lot of white feminists uh, really angry because they don't understand the importance and the intersections of race and sexism. And yeah. you really, really spoke so well to this um, in your article. And I'd love to explore this a little bit more. Well, I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, like you said, when you're, you know, <laughs> Not only obviously do we have intersectional feminism, but then, you know, so that's obviously a, a, just because in case some people aren't clear, is literally feminism for everybody. You know, it's it's not just, as I said, this kind of like w one vanilla form of feminism that only suits like one section of society. It's, it's opening up for everybody, um, kind of regardless of where people want to sit on the gender spectrum, regardless of their ability. It's, it's feminism for anybody that, you know, wants to kind of get involved in this fight. Um, and therefore, yeah. when you are then a black woman, you sit at this kind of very dangerous axis, not only of gender, but also of race. Uh, and there's a very kind of famous quote, and I, and I don't know it like exactly, but it says that, you know, the most disrespected person in America is the black woman. Like, she kind of sits at the bottom yeah. of the hierarchy because you know, not only is she already black, so she's already kind of um, on a back foot, but then she's a woman on top of that. So the kind of history of black women taking up space in society is very complex. And, you know, it's been a very hard fight. And, and I use the word fight really with intention here, because what then happens, because, you know, they have had to fight, we have had to fight. But then when you fight too much, you kind of get labeled the strong or the strong, angry black woman. So it's kind of like this very vicious cycle in where, you know, black women have been placed um, really at the bottom of the pile and therefore have had no choice but to kind of grapple their way out from that to reclaim some sense of power and autonomy. And yet in doing so, they're then kind of silenced even more because they're being told, no, you're, you're being too loud or you're being, you're being too black even, you know, often gets thrown around. Um, when it comes obviously to then 
speaking about that in terms of feminism for the black woman. You know, you know, you I don't know about in Australia, but in the UK, you just hear about the suffragette movement. You know, you know, and you think about where that yeah. even goes back to your childhood. You know, you watch Mary Poppins, and you've got you know the auntie in Mary Poppins, and she's a suffragette, and and you don't really hear about how the feminist movement applies to non-white people. To be honest, like you don't hear about you don't hear about it at all. And, you know, with votes, you know, the right to vote. Okay. Yeah. Great. The right to vote. And we, you know, we can't take away from the work that women did. Of course we can't, but the right to vote only opened up for again, white women. It, it didn't open up for everybody. And that's, that's not necessarily their fault, but it just means that our stories are different and therefore, but our stories also need a voice and a place to be shared. Um, you know, the black female body uh, has been the most kind of scrutinized, sexualized, oppressed, taken advantage of than any other body, I think, in the history uh, of of mankind. Uh, and it really does stem back to, you know, colonialization. And I, and I touch on this actually in terms of like, you know, the this the motifs which I don't think was intentional from their costume department in all fairness but even with the motifs of like of animal print and when you think really about where animal print come I mean animal print anyway animal print as a woman um it is again it sits it, it's like a, a juxtaposition animal print traditionally in fashion means so many things but that's why it's such a relatable print for so many people. You know, animal print has, is yeah. the height of luxury, but it's also the height of tackiness. You know, it's like, um, yeah. what do you call, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a print that really transcends like culture and class and revenue stream. And we all know someone, whether yeah. they are kind of, you know, I said, like, we can think of famous people, um, like Hollywood glamour stars in leopard print, or we can also probably think of reality TV stars in maybe not as, yes. uh, you know, you know, not as traditionally classy animal print, shall we say. But animal print comes from an animal. And those animals, for the most part, come from the African continent. Um, and then you know, when you go back, you know, the only people that could have afforded to have, you know, a real leopard skin jacket or, you know, cl- clothing would have been African royalty. Um, and I think that was, it's quite important to look at the way that the video kind of, again, I don't think, I don't think it was probably intentional. I just think, you know, leopard print is very on trend, but it's important to that actually leopard print has this very regal background. Um, and therefore to have it, on women that are like kind of half naked as like a nipple covering, I think is a really cool nod to like, yeah, we, we can, we can know that it's part of our history and we could, but we can also kind of modernize it and reclaim it for 2020. Honestly, that part of the article was so eye-opening for me because I had never ever considered um, what you call the the axis of classy and trashy when it comes yeah. to the history of animal print. And um, you really opened my eyes when you talked about how it had roots in the African aristocracy and you referenced the suggestion of a woman wearing animal print being savage, wild, and exotic. And those are yeah. words that have such 
like such deeply rooted um they're, they're deeply rooted in colonialism um and yeah. uh fetishization of the black body the black female body um yeah. can you speak a little bit more about that yeah so this was actually i mean obviously you know those three words um you know exotic uh you know it's 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 kind of i'm laughing because it's actually quite scary when i think because i'm i'm mixed obviously people can't see me so i'm i'm half black uh and half white and people often be like oh like aren't you exotic and it's such a bizarre i don't find it such a bizarre mm. word to call somebody exotic and when you look back you know when you look at the history of exoticism and, and where it comes from and there's really kind of like romanticization of things that were other um for no other reason apart from they yeah. were just different uh well you know it's it is great you know i guess that's the whole in a way this the, the melting pot of other is what makes society so good it's what makes i like london so cool we have all of these others blended together you know mm. like a big like fruit salad but to kind of purely like it just on the basis that it's so different is very bizarre for me. Well, it's a microaggression, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's just, you know, I think it's also the fact that it, it was then, there's a the difference between, you know, like kind of like admiring something and enjoying something and then like exploiting it. And obviously, as we know, like it, it was, exoticism was essentially a business in which commodities were sold from, you know, I don't want to say from, from east to west, but because it's not as clear cut as that, but, you know, from... Uh, you know, countries were stripped of their natural resources, um, whether that be people or otherwise, and then sold on the based on it was different slash exotic. And I think when we actually look into the whole thing of, you know, as I said, like exotic and savage and wild and how those uh, those terms were then kind of put in terms of like the black female body, Again, I was doing some research and, you know, often we speak about now um, how, you know, when we're speaking about particularly around like rape, uh, surrounding rape, and we say, actually, you know, of course it's got nothing to do with the outfit of the woman. It doesn't matter if she's wearing like hot pants and like, you know, and, not, and just a bra, her outfit does not mean that she's asking yeah. for it by, by no stretch of the imagination. Now, when colonizers first arrived uh, to Africa, and colonizers, of course, were predominantly from Northern Europe, where it's cold for anyone that hasn't visited <laughs> the UK, France, <laughs> Belgium, or Netherlands, it is cold. You know, you go into Africa, it's hot. So, of course, the um, you know the, what people wear is incredibly different. So, I read a lot of I found a lot yeah. of reading around that when colonizers were first going to Africa. And seeing, of course, that the women were in far less clothing than in London, England in, I don't know, the 1400s or 1500s. Um, <laughs> that for them was an invitation that those women were, quote unquote, asking for it. So it was almost, they were trying to, there was reading wow. suggesting that these women almost deserved to be raped because they were wearing less clothing. But again, they were wearing less clothing because the climate was significantly hotter than in England. And again, it's very interesting how we still kind of have those conversations now surrounding, you know, what women are wearing and therefore the validity of them being sexually assaulted or not. Um, 
and I, and again, I think you know that the women in being in far less clothing, uh, again in the time of colonization, also is linked to you know words such as savage and exotic because you know people acted differently. You know when you, when you think about the, the traditional kind of British rhetoric of you know stiff upper lip and you, you don't cry, you don't really express. You're kind of you're taught, I guess, traditionally over here anyway, kind of not to not to express too many emotions, not to ask too many questions. You know, naturally, if you're therefore going to a different culture, things are different. You know, things even between Northern Europe and Southern Mediterranean Europe, we express things very differently. You know, so, but the idea that because of what somebody is wearing, and because of the fact that they're, that of course they're not going to be wearing like you know, petticoats and corsets uh, when it's like 40 degrees. It's kind of just logic. Um, I don't think is therefore an invitation that those women deserve to be, you know, raped, abused, killed, uh, and all of the other kind yeah. of disgusting atrocities that happen to them. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. And I think that this actually hits on just a general point that we all seem to have this we all have our own worldview and um, the way that we have experienced the world. And I think that there's a problem where so many people are not willing to expand and consider other people's views and, you know, to just be empathetic. And that's a prime example, you know, going to a different country, a different entire continent with a hugely different climate and expecting like, oh, the way that I'm used to dressing is right. And, you know, I'm only wearing minimal clothing when I'm, you know, showering or having sex. And that they're the, yeah. that's the only concept, the only context available for me. And so it's like they're just taking that and they're implanting it. I mean, this is just colonization in general. They're just implanting it like, yeah. oh, this is what we believe works. And we're going to just blink, pop it here and enforce it on everybody. Yeah, exactly. So widely. And then not only so widely, but is also, as I said, we still kind of see the echoes of it now. You know, we st- that that's, I think, what's even scarier is that uh, it's not to say that, okay, well, I kind of understand. I didn't know any better back then, you know, because I think that's a, re- you know, I think fundamentally yeah. people did know better. They just really want to just abuse their power um, to capitalize yeah. for, you know, financial gain. But the fact that now in 2020 when frankly we are 100 percent no better yet we still very much see the echoes and the undertones from 400 years ago we, we still see it in today's culture and society that's very scary and that's very worrying that we that we've not we i guess that some people have not progressed have not matured have not are not able to rationalize the fact that what somebody is wearing or how they're acting or how they're being just purely their being is an invitation to then treat them in a you know distasteful or potentially lethal way it's not an excuse it's not an excuse and I think that we there's so much access now to learn and to constantly educate yourself and you know you, you never arrive at a point where you're like oh now I know everything and I'm woke but it's a constant learning and I mean that's why I really wanted to get you on the podcast and talk about this specifically for my audience who may I'm hoping most of them are you know 
quite socially aware, but, you know, maybe we haven't explored these issues and even just the um, notion of the animal print, I hadn't like ever thought of that. And you brought up so many topics in your article that opened my eyes. And I just think if we constantly allow ourselves to learn and to recognize the harmful behaviors that we have just kind of picked up from living in this society, like the better that we can do. And that's the thing is, I think it goes back to what I said at the beginning is that truthfully, you know, especially when you're as a writer, you already know, you know, any kind of broadcaster, me as a writer, you as a, a, you know, as a podcaster, not everyone's going to agree a hundred percent of the time. And also the other thing is not everything that I write or maybe that you say is, is maybe that might not always be our 100%, um, you know, belief, but it's kind of your job and your duty to do the work to, to invoke uh, discussion. Because for me, you know, that's the only, that's the catalyst for change. Conversations and dialogues have to be open to invite change. And I think something that people don't often realise is that, you know, when people see an opinion, especially with today's kind of digitised media, people are very quick to just, if they disagree with it, to jump down their throat rather than actually, you know, I really invite everybody to just invite some critical thinking because critical thinking allows you to kind of, listen to what you've heard or read or watched, you know, maybe, maybe do your own research on it, have a look, explore it rather than just automatically having a very um, kind of, or not primitive reaction, but rather than having this very kind of, you know, rapid response that actually doesn't, doesn't add anything to the conversation. When you hear something, whether it's to do with, you know, um, feminism or, you know, sensuality or any of the work that you do that I that anybody does, you've got to invite it into your life and, and really look at, and if you're not inviting it, look at why your people are very quick to just dismiss it without doing any extra learning. That's a, that's a scary place for me. You know, like if I see something that I don't agree with or that I'm like, oh, I'm not too sure about that. I really have to think about number one. I know we discussed this before, um, kind of off, <laughs> off, this recording, what is it that's that's throwing up for me? Like, why, if my reaction thing is so negative, mm. what is that bias or what is that kind of that judgment in me? What is that linked to? Why do I have that? Is it because maybe I'm not confident in walk, walking around in just like a leopard print cat suit with my nipple out? Is it because there's something about the way that I've been taught to discuss my body? that I don't feel comfortable, you know, like, what is it? And you have to kind of, I think, assess it in that way, rather than being like, no, I disagree. It's disgusting. Yeah, but why? Because we can all make statements. But if you can't back it up, like, there's almost no point in talking in the first place, in my opinion. I totally agree. And like, this is my thing, like I bang on constantly with my students and everybody because I want them to question their conditioning and it's so uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable to question your conditioning. And honestly, we've, we've been, um, kind of really, really exploring this a lot lately with the uprising of the Black Lives Matter movement. And a lot of white people out there are like super uncomfortable because they're realizing that they are steeped in white fragility and they are waking up to the fact that, yeah, they are going to be inherently racist because they are part of 
the world and the world is kind of it raises us like that and it's it can be so easy to just be like oh no 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 I'm not I'm just gonna like push that away push that to the side that's not um, about me and it takes work to actually stop and question your conditioning and go hmm all right I wonder what I think about this I wonder where I got that um idea from I wonder why this makes me uncomfortable but I I just honestly think that we have to do this work. We can't not question our conditioning. And this is about racism. This is about sexism, ableism, everything. You know, it's so important. Completely, completely agree. And I think, I think the thing that has shocked people, um, again, as I said, especially in the wake of um, BLM, what has shocked a lot of white people is actually how uncomfortable the work is. I, I think they kind of thought like, oh, it's fine. We can just read. I can just read a couple of books. I can watch a few Netflix shows, a couple of podcasts and bish, bash, bosh. There we go. Like, I don't know. It, it is uncomfortable. But when you think about it, logically, all growth is uncomfortable. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to the gym all of a sudden because you want to get like a firmer bum or you want to maybe lose 10 pounds or, you know, or if it's like a business and you want to go from, you know, making 3,000 a month to 13,000 a month, it's uncomfortable. All growth is uncomfortable. So this idea that, you know, you can just do a little bit of work again on, on, on systems that have been ingrained in people for centuries, this is going to be, Oh, I can just read a couple of books and then I'm done. Like, no, no, no. That's, that's so naive. Like you really, it's really unlayering what you've been taught and shown and internalized for the entirety of your life, your parents' life, your grandparents' life. <laughs> like it's almost like a generational yeah. trauma that affects everybody. Because in the same way that like I I kind of think that, you know, and I think about the stories that my dad has told me or my grandmother, and I think how would how worse it would have been even before that and before that. I I, I feel that, you know, I, I kind of I feel their pain, obviously not in the same way. And to be honest, thank God, not in the same way. But I can feel that fight. And I think in the same breath, therefore, for, for, for white people, you also have a generational kind of trauma. No one is blaming, like no one is blaming, a, you know, a 26-year-old white woman for the things that have happened. But at the same time, it's like, there has to be an element of, responsibility for what your ancestry has caused and being able to dissect what has happened and therefore understand our perspective you know like it's not saying no one's saying oh my god listen white people you better send all of us black people a thank you card uh, and a sorry card you know like I, I apologize for what I've done like no 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 no. it's just there has to be a, a more of an understanding now it's like you can see how how challenging it can be for non-white people to move through this world. You know, it doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter that we've had Obama. It doesn't matter that, you know, we've got Beyonce. It doesn't matter that we've got Lizzo. Those things, honestly, they don't matter because having a token, having a token non-white person in a position of power does not mean that that the situation is still not dire for the majority and it is dire and you only need to look at the news whether that's american news british news australian news because obviously of course you have your own indigenous people that have been 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I guess they've been raped. They've been raped, but both literally, metaphorically. Yeah, our Australian history um, of our treatment of Indigenous folk are is it's it's shocking, abominable. It's shocking. Yeah. We've had over four hundred deaths in custody just this year between in the Indigenous population, and it's horrific. Yeah, you know, I, I just think, like I said, it's like like you mentioned earlier. It's there's there's no excuse now not not to do the work. You know. I don't think the work, I think social media kind of makes you think you have to do the work publicly and you've got to, you know, whether you post your black square or you take an Instagram of the book that you're reading on white people. No, no, no. It, it can be private. It's, it, it's like, you know, it's like faith. I mean, I'm not religious, but, you know, you don't have to go to church and, you know, wear a cross to believe in God. It's the same with any kind of work. It, it's private work. And ultimately the work that you do privately, um, the more work you do privately and the work you do privately is probably the, the, the stuff that comes across publicly better anyway. Nobody has, you know, I think there's been a massive talk around kind of performative allyship. I don't want to see some like book club that like a few white girls have put together where they discuss, you know, books on racism and they just, and they discuss it via Instagram posts. No, 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 no. If you need someone to speak to, then of course discuss it with your friend. But ideally, you would discuss it with a friend that's also non-white, because otherwise you're just getting the same perspective yeah. again. But uh, you know, j- you've got to do the work. You know, and and everybody has to do the work. And and that I think we're in a, such a it's such a phenomenal time that we're in right now. You know, having COVID, where we've really had to like stop. And I actually, I think in fairness, actually, I think you know just actually going back to the the song and the video i think it being released at a time where things were already heightened as in you know race yeah. relations were already t- were, were already heightened um you know people have been kind of pretty much stuck in their houses pretty much all year so we were already in such an inflammatory time that to release a video of that nature which okay yeah we have we've had you know little kim and foxy brown but we've not really had it to that extent in a really long time. It was like the perfect storm for it to be released, which I think for me is genius. Totally genius. And I really, I honestly have so much respect for Cardi B. I think that she is smart as all hell. And yeah. she's she's really playing the game. She's really um, allowing herself to monetize the system that is built up to oppress her and I think yeah. that is remarkable and deserves like a round of applause um you actually mentioned in your article that you know a common criticism of the video is that it's seen to be pandering to the male gaze but you shot back at it saying that what could be more liberating than capitalizing on the same construct built to suppress you I think this is incredible i think 100%. that she's done such a great job of just like yeah all right i'm going to like play into this and also pay me i mean yeah well exactly and also pay me i think you know cardi b is such a force i don't know if you guys have in america this show um love and hip-hop but that is essentially the, the a reality show that propelled her and you know when she was first on it maybe like I don't know how many years ago maybe like four five six years ago and she was on the show and obviously she was you know I mean pretty much exactly how she is now apart from the fact that she 
still had a gap in her teeth, you know, and she was very confident then. She was very, she was, you know, people, she would have conversations with people and she would say like, yeah, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And people were like, mm, no, you're not. And, you know, to see where she is now, to see that she's been on the front cover of, you know, some of the most leading luxury magazines in the world. She's held, you know, she's done, uh, you know, conversations with Vogue. I love it when someone really breaks the structure that before didn't want them there, you know? So when you think about a Harper's Bazaar or a Vogue, they don't really want Cardi B there. You know what I'm saying? Like when you think of the senior executives at those magazines and what those magazines have traditionally stand for, uh, stood for and, and, and shown and expressed, Cardi B is literally the kind of the antithesis of what they have wanted. And yet she has infiltrated that space so perfectly and so seamlessly that I think that it's shown people that, you know, again, how somebody talks, how somebody dresses, it, 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 that that's not their full being. When it then obviously comes to, you know, the point you actually said in terms of her kind of capitalising on the male gaze, listen, sex sells, right? That we already, we, we always know that sex sells. It doesn't matter, frankly, I think who started the fact that sex sells, but it sells. So why on earth would a woman, a businesswoman, let's just call her, she's not just you know, a rapper. Why would a businesswoman therefore want to come in and create a brand new structure when she can just absolutely capitalize off one that already exists? And as well, you know, let's bear in mind that Cardi B was a stripper. So she was a stripper in which she she was doing that to, you know, have financial freedom to uh, get out of an abusive relationship. And of course, again, you know, strippers and sex workers, uh, you know, already have such a hard time in terms of their rights and in terms of, you know, taxes and their safety. But I think to go from being a stripper and which you were ridiculed for being a stripper but to have yet still kept some of that aesthetic now but yet now you're making like millions of dollars is remarkable and as I mentioned you know of course when you look at and obviously I'm like a geek so I don't write about something so I know every single detail so I looked at every single person involved in the making of that video and yes the director is a man and there were some comments around the fact that well how can it be feminist if the director is a man because it's obviously just pandering to the male gaze and I find that such a dismissive statement because number one you're then really ignoring um it's then really ignoring or overlooking Cardi's interaction with said director. You know, like if I get married and I have a wedding planner, just because the wedding planner is planning it doesn't mean I don't have a say. If they're, they're still my ideas, they will just execute it. You know what I'm saying? Like for sure. And I feel like I feel like we know Cardi B well enough by now to know that she had a huge influence on that. Like she's not going to just like roll over and be like, okay, director. A hundred percent. And the other thing is that so yeah, so, that, so there's that. There's the other part in in terms of it being that, you know, when we speak about feminism, 
we have to understand that we need men as part of feminism. In the same way that we speak about BLM, we need white allies to support black people. We therefore need, um, you know, traditional gender conforming male uh, allies to support the feminist movement. Like, we're not going to get there by ourselves if the people that control the seats are all straight white men. So again, it's that, there's a lot of comments about this now in terms of the director and the fact that he's a man. And I just think, yeah, you're not really giving Cardi much credit or you're not really giving then men much credit either. And also anyone that's done any research and Cardi's done so many um, interviews surrounding, you know, the, the making of the video and the song and she's very much in charge. Like this is very much, I think the Cardi show and she's created what she wanted to create. And the, the other point is that there are so many women that I know that saw that video, women that saw that video and were like, God, that is so powerful. Like that is such a sexy video. Like, and again, we could then, I guess, discuss it further. Like, oh, but, but why do, why do I as the woman find that? Thing? But it's just sexy. Yeah, it, it is. It's just sexy. And she's clearly taking ownership of it. And what I loved that you mentioned um, was about the fact that she was a stripper. She was a sex worker. And one huge issue that we have, like we've been talking about white feminism and like the issues with um, fe- the types of feminism that exclude people, whether it be based on race or like SWERFs, I think is the term sex worker, exclusionary radical feminists. And I think that a lot of people who claim to be feminists and a lot of women who have a problem with Cardi B and the video and the song itself, they most often have an inherent uh, bias against sex workers. But as you said, sex workers are profiting off the system that is there to suppress them and I just think that like what bigger flex is there than to go oh okay I'm going to use this against you and make money from you like I have so much respect for sex workers and I just think that we really need to reframe that like view that all sex workers must be you know um downtrodden and doing it because they have no other option and that it's a power play of the man where the man's in charge but really if you go to any strip club or if you speak to any sex workers, like they're in charge. They're the ones taking the money. Like they're doing it because they know what the hell they're doing. And I think that the fact that Cardi was a sex worker, like it comes through. You can see that influence. Uh, I mean, just going back to that point in terms of, you know, as you said, um, kind of the more traditional feminists being kind of anti-sex workers or or not kind of having the same feminist values for sex workers. To me, it's a, everything goes back to history, you know, like, everything has to go back to history and tradition. Prostitution, which is obviously sex work, is the oldest uh, profession in the world, right? So, of course, you know, for for me, it's kind of like, when we look back into the, the true history of sex work, would it have been some form of oppression? Probably yes. But do you know what, like, plot twist, some people have no choice. Some people actually have no choice to feed their children, but to use their body as a vessel in which to gain money. And frankly, 
if the if the choices are you either have to have sex with a man you don't want to have sex with or your children die, for me, like you said, you know, what is the bigger flag? I would much rather my family survive rather than we all die because we can't afford food in, you know, goodness knows what century, BC, AD, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like the thought that because of because of because a woman capitalizes on her body means that she is anti-feminist is such an archaic view and is based on what well what is it based on because it's just a job in the same way that any other job is and I think regardless of their motivations regardless of whether they are you know someone that is is really forced to do that to support a drug habit or because they're doing that because they are you know a, a, a kind of a stereotypical, you know, six foot tall Russian model that's an escort. Why is there then a difference in the way that we treat these women? It's it's a means to an end in the way that any job is. And whether they whether that woman feels if that woman feels liberated doing sex work, it's like it's okay. But if she's oppressed or if she's forced into it, as you mentioned, if she's downtrodden, we look down feminists would rather look down on them rather than think of a way to support them, you know, like no woman wants to have sex with a man for $20 to get some drugs. No one, nobody wants to do that. But then where are the, where are the pillars in place to protect women like that? There really aren't any. Absolutely. And I mean, I think on the, on the other side of it, just acknowledging as well that um, women do enjoy sex. And if we're talking about sex workers, um, in the category of women who do have sex for money, like there is, there are a lot of women who do that by choice because they do enjoy sex and kind of going off on this tangent of um, women enjoying sex. (laughs) I want to come back to your article because quite possibly my favorite quote (laughs) from your article, and there are many, but you said the echo of fake orgasms is deafening as women are still unaware that sex is supposed to be an enjoyable act. One we should be encouraged to be active subjects in rather than merely passive objects. So good. Yeah. I mean, I think, I I think, I think that for me was, that might've been, that actually I think was my favorite part of the article. Um, because I, I guess as I said, you know, I mean, the odd, the, the quote kind of sums it up, isn't it? It's like, we've been taught to believe and we've been shown in films, whether it's, you know, kind of, I was say normal, whether it's films we see in the cinema or whether it's, you know, actual like porn films, that women aren't really meant to enjoy this sexual process. Like, it's like this kind of yeah. glorified dance that ends in male satisfaction only and that we're just meant to be there, like as I said, you know, as I mentioned, like like a passive creature. Um, and even if we are being incredibly active, our end satisfaction hasn't ever been given like the main protagonist role ever. Um, so I think women are really shocked, and you know, and you actually see it, I think, through all generations, you know, you've got women that are, you know, much older than us that would kind of schedule sex in like mm. you know it's just like a, a little treat um but you've also got really 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 young girls that because of that kind of I guess you know this the very 
the, the speed at which data is transferred now and therefore the fact that younger kids are seeing sex and porn at such a young age uh for, mm. no far younger than even me and I'm and I'm 29 people kids are seeing porn from when they're like under 10 now so the way that that yeah. then is ingrained in their mind is that it's all about the man and if you're from 10 or, or let's say you're less than 10 to then whenever you're then sexually active you're just shown that it's all about the man um whether whether you are male or female you just see that it's always about the man then when you then yeah. become sexually active it's going to have a massive impact on on your sexual satisfaction of course so i think you know there are lots of women that don't know what to say that don't that don't have the confidence to become a sexual being and say what it is that they want um or or even actually more so than that not that they don't know what to say they don't, they don't know what they want you know they're so far removed from their own pleasure that they don't even know what it is that they want that because their body has almost been yeah. removed from them like their their body is just a vessel and they're not even linked to it that's really scary and I, and I think sorry we've never been given any any a encouragement to explore our own bodies and that's why I do what I do because so many women like you said are just not really sure of what they even like and yeah. not even aware that they deserve to feel pleasure and that sex can be an enjoyable act like the amount of women out there who don't enjoy sex like that makes me so sad and it's it's unfortunately so true because we are brought up in such a society where everything is through the male gaze and it, honestly it, it really scares me that for so long well still men have this idea that women don't enjoy sex and yet they still have sex with women for their pleasure like how selfish I mean you know the way I say it is I feel that like the, yeah it's 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 an insane concept it's like you said to think that men think that women don't enjoy sex but yet men still have sex with women uh rather than asking or like as I mentioned before you know doing the required learning men would rather mm -hmm. just not I think you know the female body black or otherwise has, has become a commodity and it's become yeah. a commodity that works for society when it wants to sell something as we mentioned of course you know sex sells and there is a very um I would say quite rigid aesthetic of the female body that we often see that celled, which is, you know, uh, quite often, you know, white, thin, tall, you know, that kind of traditional kind of model-esque look, regardless of um, the kind of era of supermodel that we're speaking about, they all have very similar parallels. Mm. So it's kind of, the, the female body is capitalised to sell something, but yet when it then gets to kind of the vagina, that's almost like, or hold on, just female reproductive parts full stop actually, because I guess technically I don't mean the vagina, I mean the vulva. Um, when it gets to yeah. them speaking about the vulva, we're then like fear-mongered into that being like the dirtiest place on the, word, uh, on the world with so many yes. dirty words to, to, to describe it. Um, it's just very interesting. You've, you've got this, this, this concept that, we we love the female body. We want to make money. 
We love it when we just want to have sex with it. Mm-hmm. We love it when we want to, you know, plaster it across, plaster a semi-naked woman over a billboard to sell something as innocuous as toothpaste. But it's fine because she's got her tits out, so we'll probably sell millions of toothpaste. But yet, if we then start speaking about her reproductive parts or her vulva or periods, it's like, no, 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 no. Too much, too much. Yeah. It's like, this is where, this is where life began. Like not, it's where life began and it's the most sensitive and pleasurable part of a female's body and you're choosing to ignore it. We can't do this anymore. Oh my God. That's just so very well put. And I just think that. (laughs) Was it the the tits out on the toothpaste that got it for you? (laughs) Tits tits out on the toothpaste. All of it. So brilliant. I just. I could not agree more. Um, and I am concerned that we're going to run out of recording time. Um, but I absolutely love your brain. I loved this article and it's been such a pleasure to chat with you, Ria. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sure everybody's learned so much from you. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't know if they've learned, but hopefully they've just kind of you know, just have some tidbits to do some further research. And if you've not, hopefully, you've, you know, you've, you've laughed a little bit. That's all we can ask for, you know? Absolutely. Hopefully we were very entertaining for you. Um, and you learnt a thing or two <laughs> as well. And don't fake orgasms. How about that? Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, that's, that's a good, that's a good one to leave on actually. Yeah. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> just don't do it. And also go listen to the song because it's fabulous and yeah, enjoy your, what (laughs) yeah enjoy it enjoy it thanks for listening to the sensuality academy podcast before you go i want to invite you to take my free quiz to discover your pleasure language this really quick fun quiz will get you started on your journey to explore your own pleasure and how to communicate this with a partner plus you'll receive a bonus worksheet with journaling prompts to dive even deeper Check it out now in the show notes or head to eleanorhadley.com slash pleasure language. Also, don't forget to share with your friends, post it to your stories and tag me over on Instagram at Eleanor Hadley. Enjoy. Enjoy.